Well, today we come to the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. We have a lot of reading in front of us today. In this enormous chapter, we will see a lot of transitions. We already saw last week Sarah's journey come to an end. Abraham's journey is nearing its end. He's now exceedingly old, but before his journey of faith concludes, as a, and as a matter of faith, Abraham bends his mind on securing a wife for his son. And in this whole process that we will see today in Genesis chapter 24, the transition is clear. Isaac succeeds his father and Rebekah succeeds Sarah. In chapter 24, there are going to be four scenes, four distinct settings. And we're going to take them one at a time. We're going to read those chunks at a time rather than me reading all 67 verses at once. So first we'll see Abraham's household in verses 1 through 9, and then we will see um, a well of Nahor in verses 10 through 28. Then we'll go to Laban's household in verses 29 through 61. And finally, Isaac's household Verses 62 to 67. In these four different scenes, we're going to see God's miraculous provision through everyday means. Not amazing, miraculous, sudden events, but everyday means through which God is working and providing and speaking. We're going to see the beauty of hard work and hospitality. We're going to see a budding romance. We're going to see trust in God's unfailing promises galvanized and secured. And maybe most profoundly, we will see a people devoted to prayer and a God who loves to provide. Let's read the first nine verses together of Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I might make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from among among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you must be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Father, grant us wisdom this morning as we dive into your word, as we desire to see the treasures you have put there for us to mine. Yes, help us in that mining. May our hearts be filled with kingdom treasures as we come before your word, today and always as we come before your word. Speak to us. Speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. So it starts with Abraham being well advanced in years. Remember from last week, 
Sarah died. She was 127. Abraham, being 10 years older than her, is 137 when Sarah died. And it's likely a year or two has passed since then. So he is a very old man. In the ancient world, great age was a sign of great blessing. So he is is very blessed. As it says there in verse 1, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, lifespan included. And as we continue through the passage, we're going to see it almost flashy for us. Abraham's wealth. He is a wealthy, wealthy man. And so here again, God had blessed Abraham in all things, age and wealth and offspring. Abraham left his homeland. He wanted to follow this God and Go to this strange country in large part because God made promises to him, promises of blessing. He wanted the blessing. He was in pursuit of the blessing by faith. Now he's nearly at the end of his life, and it seems that those promises have been fulfilled. But in those promises God made to Abraham, he made promises of offspring. And right now there is one offspring. There is only Isaac. And so Abraham is concerned about that as a matter of practical wisdom, but also trusting in these promises of God. He wants there to be more offspring. And so he turns his attention to imminent succession and finding a worthy wife for his beloved son. He wants the offspring to continue for the promises of God to continue But among all the women of the Canaanite peoples, there's not a single one that's worthy of Isaac. He doesn't want any of these women around here. Because Abraham understood that God's chosen family didn't come from the land of Canaanites, wasn't counted among the people of Canaan. God chose a family from the other side of the Fertile Crescent, from Mesopotamia, from the Semitic people, the Semites. They still do dwell in Mesopotamia. So Abraham knows. He understands God's plan. He knows that God has chosen people out of the Semitic people, out of his family. So he wants somebody from his family for his son, a wife from his family for his son. So he's got this plan in mind. And it accords with the promises of God. He calls in his servant, chief servant over his household. And he gives to him this incredibly significant commission. Because the magnitude of what he's about to tell this servant to do, he asks him to take an oath. By the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. So there's nothing higher than that, than the God of heaven and earth, to pledge an oath by. So he's ready to entrust this servant with his future, with his family's future, with God's salvific plan for all time. He was ready to entrust it to this servant, and he says to him, do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Instead, travel to my homeland and find a woman from among my family. He's he's saying, embark on this journey. That's five or six hundred miles one way. (laughs) Look with me, servant. I think he's showing his wisdom, and he, he says, well, what if she doesn't come back with me? Like, what if she doesn't want to do this, Abraham? Do you, do you want me to, take, to go back with Isaac? Like if she rejects the proposal, I'll come home with no wife. Do you want me to then take Isaac back to that land 
and try again? See, the servant knows that Abraham's asking him to do something a little bit unusual, travel a great distance without Isaac and ask a woman that none of them know if she would leave her family and her home and marry a man that she's never met. I think that the servant wisely discerns it's very likely no woman would agree to such a plan. The implication to the servant's question is, I think, should I take Isaac with me to start? Wouldn't that just be a little more effective? Shouldn't he come with me from the get-go? But whether initially or upon a return trip, Abraham does, doesn't want to hear about that. Whatever you do, he says, do not take my son back to my homeland. Do not take him back to Mesopotamia, where I came from. And then verse 7, look at verse 7. Abraham repeats promises that God has spoken to him. Promises of land, promises of offspring. So God promised Abraham's offspring this land, the promised land, not that land over there. And he knows he's a sojourner in this land. It's been very difficult to establish anything in this land of Canaan. And if you go back there where my family is living in comfort and they have cities and homes, he might just be tempted to stay there where it's a little bit easier to make a living. Don't take him back there. Isaac must stay in the land of of promise. Remember what happened when Abraham left the land of promise and he went down to Egypt? That went very poorly for him. He doesn't want the same for his son. He forbids Isaac from leaving Canaan. But despite this strange offer that's about to be made, and this servant who's going to travel some 600 miles to make an offer to a wife, or to a woman, to become a wife of a man she's never met, Abraham's confident that despite the strangeness of all of that, God is still going to provide. God will fulfill his promises because God has proved this to Abraham again and again. He is trustworthy. What he speaks happens. So Abraham says that the Lord will send an angel to go before the servant. This could be just an angel or this could be the angel of the Lord. The text is a little ambiguous. But Abraham is essentially saying this to the servant. There is a woman, and God's already preparing her heart. Even still, Abraham concedes the servant's point. Yeah, that's a possibility, so if she says no, you're released from this oath. Don't feel burdened to bring somebody back. Just whatever you do, again, he says it, don't take Isaac to that land. So the servant agrees, and he pledges himself to an oath. He, do, he will do as Abraham asks. And it's really strange how he puts his hand under his thigh. It's a little bit of a mystery what's going on there. The best explanation I found is that this was an idiom for um, touching the place of life which is the most sacred place to put an oath. But it is a strange way to make a pledge. I'm glad we have Bibles to put our hands on. 
But here, with this commission, Abraham says that the angel of the Lord will go ahead, he will prepare her heart, God will provide, he will make a way, he will bring this woman, and yet he concedes that, well, she might say no. So what we see is a balancing again in Genesis, again in Abraham's journey of God's sovereign will and man's will. God will work in this woman's heart, and yet this woman must still choose. And someone must some, in some mysterious way, God will guide her will without violating her will. The Bible speaks of this sort of thing often, and here in Genesis 24, it's, it's, I think it speaks very loudly out of the text. Scripture's presenting this tension. It's not a problem, it's a tension, and we would do well to learn from that tension. People, we really do have agency. We are responsible for our choices. And yet, God really does direct the wills of men and women. It's a tension, not a problem. So this whole scene in Abraham's household, we've just read, we've just read Abraham's last recorded words. Every single word is either motivated by or directly containing the promises of God. Abraham entered history, having heard the promises of God. From afar, they were still in a distant land, and he pursued them. But now he's exiting history, having been fully united to those promises. They're just coming off of his lips as if, as if the, he's been imbued by the promises, and he can't help but speak the promises. He's been united to the promises. And so he exits history. And then we move from Abraham's household to a distant well. Look at verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, the time when women would go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I might drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arm weighing ten gold shekels and said, 
Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As, and as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So we see the servant traveling north with ten camels. We've seen it before. Only the wealthiest of the wealthy could afford camels in Abraham's day. They were very rare at this point in history. They were like the, the top 1% of the 1% could afford camels. And so camels combined with the choice gifts that they're taking with them means that, these, that the servant is journeying with it a significant amount of wealth. In verse 32 and a couple other verses, you see that there's this other company of men also traveling with them, this, this very large caravan of camels and riches and men, men likely there to protect all this riches on a long and dangerous road. But the narrative entirely skips months of journeying, and all of a sudden they land the whole procession on the outskirts of Nahor. Nahor is a city apparently founded by Abraham's younger brother, also named Nahor. Nahor lying in the northwest reaches of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a word that means between the rivers. Between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers is Mesopotamia and the fertile area surrounding it. So they take this long journey and they end up at Nahor. And not just at the right place, but at the right time. For the servant strategically plans when they will arrive. As the sun is getting low, he knows that the women will be coming out to the well. As things are cooling off to draw water for their families. So he arrives at this well, the exact right place, at the exact right time, and what does he do? Immediately he prays. Notice his prayer. It's so informal, the servant's prayer. It's conversational and situationally practical, and it's personal. In fact, in the ESV translation from which I just read, it doesn't even say that he prayed. It just says that he said he just began speaking to God. Remember what he said? Look, look again at what he says, starting in verse 12. And he said, he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I might drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. I think we can learn from the servant a lot of things. But here, I think it's, we can learn from how he prays. It's good for all of us to have times of, of public or formal prayer but I hope that the majority of our prayers are like the servants. And you come upon a situation and you need God's guidance. And so it's just like you enter into a conversation with him. There isn't a big flourish of prayer. It's just you said to God. You begin speaking to him about this situation. 
in your heart. It's, it's natural and it's effortless, which is what the servant is, is doing. It's just like breathing. And I think it's very pleasing to the Lord. And I mean, from a zoomed out perspective, this whole chapter, chapter 24, is all about God's provision. Right? When God is the one providing for your needs and you're not going to the government or your family or your wealth or whatever else, when you're going to God primarily for your provisions, then you are elevating God to the position of God. It's God being God that's his rightful place. So when we come to him conversationally in prayer, effortlessly throughout the day, we're glorifying God as our provider. And so this is what the servant is doing, just conversationally speaking with God, praying, asking, looking for guidance, and then God provides. Even before he finishes praying, God answers the prayer. A beautiful young woman appears. She's carrying a water jar on her shoulder. So he's eager to see, is this the woman that I've just been praying about? So he hurries over to her, he catches up with her, he asks for a drink of water, she happily obliges. She lowers the water jar and gives him a drink, but she doesn't stop there. Just as he prayed, she then offers to give water to all of his camels, the ten camels. You know, a thirsty camel can drink 25 gallons of water. There's no small task that she's offering to engage in. This is a, this is a hard-working, self-motivated woman. And she goes about getting all this water. She's doing this. I mean, is it really 250 gallons plus, I don't know. It's a lot of water, and he's just silently watching her gazing at her. And I think he's gradually gripped by this quiet realization. She is the one. Parentheses. Take a moment to consider that profound reality of what's going on right there. Young men and women, some of my own, pay attention to this. The servant recognizes that this young woman is physically beautiful. She looks good. But that's not enough. That's not what made her stand out. Her looks are not what make her worthy. It's her character that makes her worthy. And so when asked, she's eager to meet a need and an enormous need. She's eager to meet it. And then she generously offers to go above and beyond. She works incredibly hard to meet the need. And as the text presents it, she does it all with a glad heart. It doesn't seem like she's begrudging at all. In other words, right here we see Rebecca displaying perfect hospitality. All throughout Abraham's journey, we have seen hospitality elevated to one of the highest virtues. And here, Rebecca is possessing good-natured, happy hospitality, and she possesses it in spades. Her physical beauty is absolutely eclipsed by her beautiful, hospitable nature. So, women, you want to be beautiful? One thing that you can do is learn to be genuinely hospitable. Men, you want a worthy woman who rises above the shallowness of our age? Ask, 
Is she hospitable? Rebecca was beautiful because she was hospitable. Close that parenthesis. The servant sees it in her, her hard work, her initiative, her self-sacrifice, her hospitality, and he realizes she is the answer to prayer. And so he adorns her with costly gifts of gold, a nose ring and bracelets, and there's no shame in it. This man clearly wants to impress her, and he wants to impress Are we good? All right. Did I hear an amen for that? That was a funny one. I'll just take that moment. I do love it when people say amen to something. Yeah. It tells me something's actually happening. All right, where was I? Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca being a beautiful woman of the highest quality of character, She comes from Abraham's family, Isaac's second cousin once removed. So there is no doubt now in the servant's mind that this is the woman that he has journeyed for all this distance. And you know, meeting Rebecca at that well at that time was no chance meeting. All of his strategizing couldn't have orchestrated that. This is God's provision. And here we see in the text every minute circumstance and all the years of context building to this moment, all of that has been entirely orchestrated by the Lord of heaven and earth. Well, it's just as Abraham said, isn't it? That the angel of the Lord would go before the servant, and he has. The God of Abraham has led the servant to a new mother of covenant. In verse 27, you see Abraham's servant worship God for his answer to prayer, his steadfast love and faithfulness toward, not the servant, but towards Abraham. All of this is to bless Abraham. This servant is truly a man of God, truly understanding how this covenant works. It's no wonder Abraham trusts him so completely. And so after the realization that Rebecca's the one after the gifts of gold, Rebecca then hurries home and she wants to tell her family about all this, this wild day at the well. Look at verse 29. I'm going to read to verse 61. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. 
Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what, uh, until I have, said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he, was, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall, tell, you shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath. When you come to my clan, and if they will not give you to her, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if, I, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw water for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. and She went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets in her, on her arm. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing had, has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I might go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and, their, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. 
And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, O oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her younger, younger and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. So even though this is technically Bethuel's household, Bethuel is almost entirely absent from this passage, except for this brief moment in verse 50. And so Rebekah's brother, Laban, in every way acts as the head of the household. And yet Laban is very different, very different from his sister. So as soon as Laban sees Rebekah, sees her new jewelry, he hears her story, he rushes out to greet this wealthy traveler. And I'm sure he was delighted to find this guy standing next to ten camels. Laban is then quick at that point to offer his hospitality. So Rebecca's hospitality is flowing out of her character. She doesn't know of any return when she offers to, to be hospitable. She's not seeking any gain. But Laban's hospitality is entirely motivated by greed, by the flash of gold, and he's excited for wealth. You know, Laban's going to appear again with Jacob, Isaac and Rebekah's son. And he's, when, when Jacob comes looking for a wife, in that account, Laban is both greedy and treacherous. And so Genesis 24 right here is setting the stage for Genesis 29. We will see Laban's treachery and greed indeed. Not we in this series, mind you, but if you go and read it today. So Laban addresses Abraham, Abraham's servant, with these flourishes, and he calls the servant, blessed of the Lord. Though that's true, I just think it reeks with insincerity. He's got gold in his eye, and he's hoping for a return, and so Laban is eager to make every provision for man and beast, and that provision would have been significant, but he sees the possibility of a significant payday. But Abraham's shrewd servant is not stricken by the temptations offered Laban. In verse 33, it says he won't even eat. I will not eat until I do what I've come to do, until I say what I have to say, until this mission is accomplished. And so the servant right here knows how to respectfully control the situation. He knows that these people are really eager to hear what he has to say, so he refuses their hospitality, knowing it's motivated by greed, so that he can tell them why he is there and accomplish his mission. And I think what we see happen next is Abraham's servant putting on a master class of persuasion with this two-pronged approach, two very different sections in his speech to Laban's household. So first, the servant observing Laban's greed starts by flashing Abraham's wealth. You see that? Talks about all of his wealth. He, he then neglects to, Ab- to, to mention Abraham's age, but he talks about how old Sarah was when Isaac was born. So he's making this subtle and powerful implication. The security of Abraham's, well, Abraham's blessing is secure and... Isaac is young relative to his parents because there isn't a young woman who wants to marry an old man, at least unless they are greedy. 
And then the servant says that of all Abraham's wealth, Isaac's going to get all of it. And so you see Abraham's servant first engaging the material cravings of Laban. And then, next, the servant dives into the more theological matters, the more important theological matters. And he gives testimony to what Abraham has commissioned him to do. According to God's promises, he recites the words of his prayer by the well. He shows that according to all of this is happening according to God's design, and that Rebecca, this daughter of yours, is, or sorry, the sister of yours, Laban, is the exact fulfillment of prayer. So the servant is framing the entire second portion of his speech theologically, first materially, then theologically. He wants Laban's household to know. That it is God's will, Rebecca, return with him to Canaan. And in verse 49, he says, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me. I might turn to the right hand or to the left. So in other words, after hearing about all of God's prolific material and spiritual blessings upon Abraham, how do you choose? And I think only the most obtuse observer will not see that this is literally a match made in heaven. The servant understands his audience. He knows how to draw them in. He effectively reveals the divine will. Hmm. I think that's something we can do. We have this great treasure we carry around with us in jars of clay. If we were to understand our audience, if we would know what would draw them in, then maybe they would be keen to hear about the divine will, about God's plan and purpose. The servant has a lot to teach us. Well, it's effective. For in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel are in complete agreement. Bethuel's only contribution. They are in complete agreement. They say themselves, the thing has come from the Lord. Let Rebekah be the wife of your master's son. Remember, these are pagans. This is Abraham's God. This is the one that he's followed to some crazy land, and we've never heard from him for over 50 years. They're just finding out now that he's alive, let alone he's rich, blessed. They're pagans. In fact, Laban's name means white, I think in Akkadian, and it, and it was used poetically to talk about the moon. And as we said before, they, came, they were moon-worshipping pagans. So for them to say that this thing has come from the Lord, clearly God is working in this whole orchestration. And so they say, let Rebecca be the wife of your master's son. And it does seem strange. It almost pricks at us to see an arranged marriage like this. Like they're selling off their daughter. But in Abraham's day, this is the most common form of marriage. Arranged marriages. Take her and go. You know, that's the exact same sequence of words that God has spoken to Abraham many times now. Take and go. Remember, he was to take Isaac and go up Moriah. Take your family and go to a land 
Take, go. Upon hearing these words that Laban and Bethuel speak, Abraham's servant falls on his face, falls on the ground, and he worships the Lord. Right there in the tent, at every turn, this servant is ready to acknowledge and worship God. He sees most profoundly God's hand at work. And then the servant lavishes riches upon Rebekah and her family. Likely this is the bride price. It's something like a compensation for the economic loss of losing their daughter. And, and now it would seem that Laban receives even greater compensation over and above the bride price. And so the, the mission is effectively completed here. When it's all resolved, the servant has this urgency now to take and go to take Rebecca back. But the family counters with this 10-day period of, of farewell. It's just, cool your jets. Let's hang out a little bit. We want to spend a little more time with Rebecca before we never see her again. And you can understand it. But the servant insists that they leave now. And he implies that if they don't, they're acting against God's will. Now, I think this is because the servant has great situational awareness. And it's proven true a few chapters later. Remember, Laban forces a 20-year delay upon Jacob? He remembers. And so I think that the servant knows that 10 days is going to turn into two weeks to a month to who knows how long. Let's go. Well, ultimately, the decision, the decision is left to Rebecca herself. And I don't know if you recognize it, but this is actually incredibly significant. An, an example of where the Bible is elevating a woman above the culture of her day to put in her hands a decision so incredibly important. So the decision is left in her hands. And to the servant's great relief, and according to God's will, and according to God's plan, Rebecca matches Abraham's faith. And she chooses to leave her family and her country to go to an unknown place and to wed an unknown man. The story is very intentionally putting in parallel Rebecca and Abraham. Rebecca is being presented to us like the female Abraham. And so it implies that Rebecca isn't motivated at all by material gain. She's motivated here by faith. She somehow knows that she's following God, the true God. In verse 60, as Rebecca leaves, her family remarkably speak a blessing over her that is a mirroring or a paralleling of the promises that God has spoken over Abraham. They're almost verbatim. So if you're looking at verse 60, listen to Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. God says to Abraham, Surely I will bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Even though the family doesn't realize it, they're sending her off, Rebecca off, 
into, the covenant, into covenant with God. They have no idea how truly those words will be fulfilled that they speak over her. Now verse 62. Let's move to our final scene. Now Isaac had returned from Berlihai, Roy, and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isaac had been in the Negeb. It's likely overseeing his father's significant flocks, and it's the first time in Genesis where we see Isaac cast in a light independent of his father. He's now operating as his own man. It's evening. The light is failing. Isaac is walking through a field and he's meditating. Based on the context of this section, it would seem that he's, he's meditating before the Lord as he mourns the loss of his mother. It might have been a year or two or maybe three, but that ache is still there. And Isaac is here cast in a light which all of Genesis will observe him. Not a perfect man, but a quiet and prayerful one. And he lifts his eyes from his prayer. He looks up and he sees Rebecca coming. And she lifts up her eyes and she sees Rebecca walking. And the author is very clearly, clearly going for this touch of romance, giving the idea that they see each other at the exact same moment, like their eyes lock. Another chance encounter orchestrated by the Lord. And then the servant reports everything to Isaac, calling Isaac, my master. It was Abraham who sent him, but it's Isaac who's hearing the report, another indication that the son is succeeding the father. And Rebekah succeeds Sarah. Isaac takes Rebekah into Sarah's tent. Isaac was just mourning the loss of his mother before the Lord, and God immediately provides comfort by bringing Rebekah. So where Isaac would have sought motherly love, now he consummates his marriage and is comforted by his wife. Now the text makes it seem like it all happens right at once. But that would have been really strange, and it, it didn't likely happen that way. There was certainly a, a ceremony and a celebration and giving of gifts and all the things that came with a wedding of that age, but the narrative just skips over all of that because it's aiming at a particular point. Rebecca succeeded Sarah, and Isaac has succeeded Abraham. It's no small detail in verse seven, in 67 that says, Isaac loved Rebekah. See that? Not only has the servant's quest been successful, he's brought back this worthy woman from Abraham's family. Not only has God provided, but there is this measure of abounding overflow there's a quick and deep love now between new husband and new wife. When God gives, when God provides, it is his joy to provide generously, abundantly, aboundingly. Yes, he's, Christ has come to give life, 
and life abundantly. That's a long passage and repetitive. And I think there are many things that we could draw out of this lengthy passage, but there are two that I, that I believe stand out above the rest. Prayer and provision. Abraham, Abraham's servant, Isaac, they're all men of prayer. Their prayers are not fancy. Their prayers are not formal. They are humble and conversational. And they deal with the everyday matters that are right in front of them. They're effortless, like breathing. So is, is your prayer life like that? Is your prayer life conversational? Prayer without ceasing, I think, is conversational prayer where you're just going throughout your day and constantly bringing God into that and acknowledging God and asking for his guidance and praising him for the good things that you see. Oh, my word, today is beautiful. So walking from there to here, just praising God at the beauty of this morning. So pray while you drive and pray while you, while you walk and pray while you wonder Pray when you have a need and praise when there is success. And remember that when your prayers are answered, to praise God, worship him. This is the longest chapter in Genesis. And God does not directly speak one time. But do you know he speaks the entire time? Through all the circumstances, of which there are many, he orchestrates every bit of it. Can you hear his voice? He orchestrates everything that you encounter. Can you hear his voice? I have to qualify that. Every time in this chapter that God speaks through a circumstance, circumstance which we see happen often, the servant tests those circumstances against God's promises, or you could say against God's word. Therefore, if you are not in God's word, your interpretation of your circumstances are going to be unreliable and faulty. So pray constantly, conversationally, personally. God is going to answer you through his promises as we filter them through his word. Provision. There are a lot of things that separate man from God. Infinite things. Perhaps one of the most practical things that differentiates God from man is that God is the provider and we are the needy ones. He has everything that we need to live and we need everything in order to live. I can't go five minutes without breathing. Maybe some of you can, but not much longer. If we trust in God, if we have faith in him, if we believe him, if we go to him for our needs, he promises, he promises that he will give. And that's what makes him such a good God, is he doesn't just give. No. He doesn't just want you to survive, to barely make it through. No, he lavishes you with more than you could ask or imagine. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we could ask or, or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God may not provide what you think you want, but he will lavishly give you what you need. 
abundantly, overflowingly. And so we ask through prayer and God gives. And when we receive from the provider, then we praise him and God gets the glory. So if you want to glorify God, do as Abraham's servant does and praise him for his provisions. The servant, like I said, he did it right there in Laban's tent, which was probably a little unsettling for Laban and the rest of the people there. But he falls on the ground and he worships God right there when he sees God's provision. What if you praised God before your coworkers or your family members or whomever else? What if they heard you doing it? Don't be ashamed. God loves it. He is glorified when you are not ashamed when you are not ashamed to acknowledge him for his provision. We're needy, aren't we? And we can't even count the ways in which we need. But undoubtedly, most significantly, above everything else, what we need is for our sins to be forgiven. What we need is for our condemnation to be removed. We need freedom, liberty from these most oppressive realities. And so God's greatest provision is the gift of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the greatest descendant of Isaac and Rebekah and Abraham and Sarah. And all the promises spoken to them, spoken to the patriarchs, are most fully realized in Christ, that through him all blessing, all covenant blessing, flows through him beyond measure. God once flooded the world in judgment, but now he floods it with rivers of living water through Jesus Christ that you might have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus gave his life to secure this blessing for us. His body torn and his blood spilled. Something that we remember today in the Lord's Supper when we join together in communion. So together, unashamedly, let's praise God for his great provision. We praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for rending the heavens and coming down in flesh and taking on the form of a man. Christ, our life. Thank you for this incredibly great gift. There are no words that can rightly express how awesome this is. But with whatever we have, we praise you, we worship you for giving us your one and only Son, that through our belief in him, We are not condemned, but we shall have everlasting life. Praise you and thank you in Jesus' name, because of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In a moment, the ushers will come around.